Welcome to Reframing Our Stories. This podcast is dedicated to deconstructing the stories we've been told about who we are and how we're supposed to be. I'm your host, Kara Houck. Today we will be talking to a friend of mine who I went to seminary with. He is currently serving as the ELCA pastor at our Savior's Lutheran Church in Sabika, Minnesota. There are many reasons why I wanted to interview Eric. First and foremost, he is a phenomenal human being, and we need to hear more from humans like him. He also provides me with great hope and joy for how he ministers, and we need more like him. He is a white man who fights against racism, is a feminist, and he isn't afraid to say the words, I was wrong and I'm sorry, I will do better and I will keep learning. Things we all need help saying. He is a breath of fresh air. He also accompanied me the first time I ever taught a workshop to pastors and youth ministers on how to start talking about sex in church. He shares a passion about learning about sexuality like me. Eric and I also share the Enneagram number four, If you don't know what the Enneagram is, it is a detailed way of living in a personality test that can hurt just a little bit, but it's very insightful. Eric also eats books for breakfast, one of the most well-read people out there. But overall, I believe Eric holds a lot of wisdom, and I just wanted to spend time with that wisdom. So with all of that, welcome, Eric. I am so glad you are here. Thank you. It is really great to be here. Yay. You do. I will tell you that I have, I, with Enneagram 4, right, we have a little problem with envy. And I will say Mm -hmm. that I envy you and the amount of books that you're able to read. (laughs) That's very kind. I often (laughs) tell people that when everyone asks how I do it, I say I don't have any other hobbies or friends. those (laughs) Those are the things that help me have time, which aren't, isn't entirely true, but maybe a little. Um, while everyone is out like doing their hobbies and being with friends, I'm reading books, which is not a bad place to be. But I um, also feel like maybe it's choices, right? Because I should probably be doing that, but I was like, maybe we should watch another Netflix show, right? Yeah. So I think yeah. your intention of even behind sitting down with a book and taking it is, is good, right? It's true. Yeah. And I, I, have, I have an almost six-year-old and an almost two-year-old, um, so I don't have a lot of like independent TV time around my house. So then yeah. I keep books laying around, and that's what I wind up picking up. That's great. I love that. Yeah. So I just, you know, really wanted to spend time with you because I just have always admired who you are, and just from the moment we met at seminary, I'm like, this is a good man. Like this guy, mm-hmm. <laughs> he's solid. Um, I just appreciate the fact that you really observe. I feel like you're an observer and someone who is empathetic and just kind of pays attention to the world and where things are going and how we need to show up. And so I'm grateful that you are a pastor uh, in the ELCA church because I feel like you bring a sense of hope and wisdom to this place uh, and you're, I think, are a change maker. And so I'm just grateful. And so I wanted to have you on my show because I feel like you yourself is someone who can reframe stories of those who have been hurt by the church. Mm. Um, 
you know, which are plentiful and who I have come across a lot of in my time being a sex educator. Mm -hmm. So many people get afraid of me because mm -hmm. they know that I have a theological background. Sure. So for me, I, what made you want to become a pastor and what has been the biggest learning for you in that process? So originally when I came out of high school and, and started college, I originally, I wanted to be a high school English teacher. Mm. Um, that was what I, I came uh, into college wanting to study um, because I had, I had great English teachers when I was um, in high school. And there was a particular uh, teacher, Mr. Tack, uh, who was my sophomore English teacher. And he um, had a way of opening up stories in a way that kind of blew my mind. Mm. Um, he, we were studying like the Canterbury Tales and King Arthur and that uh, area. And he put those tales and those stories next to Star Wars. <laughs> um, and talked about like the use of myth and symbolism and the nice. journey of the hero. And so we would read King Arthur and then we'd watch The Empire Strikes Back. Oh, fascinating. And it was incredible. Um, and so that lit a fire that, uh, that I wanted to then pass on to others mm -hmm. um, to find those connections and make those connections. So then when I was in college studying uh, to be an English teacher, I worked at a Bible camp. And while I was there, I realized that like the stories in scripture animate that same kind of spark or that same kind of desire in me to find the connections of the stories in scripture, the myth and the symbolism and the journeys to find connection points to those stories in other stories in movies or books or music and then with our own stories and our own lives yeah uh, finding those connection points and those parallels were that uh, was a really big thing for me a, a big discovery of something that brought me joy mm -hmm. and brought me life and so that was something that really said okay i i can do this i can find connections it, it was basically um, doing that same work that made me want to be an English teacher, but now I just have this particular set of stories in scripture. Um, these, these sets of books and stories and people and journeys and myth and symbolism and all of that to, to connect to and to draw from and to teach from and to um, animate hmm. my world. And so that was that was what made me want to become a pastor and what drove me in that direction. Um, and the, the biggest learning for me, I think from, from that reflecting back, I've been a pastor for about eight years now. Hmm. And one of the biggest things I've learned has been trying to find a, a better rhythm of work and rest. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, right. Yeah. I'm very well versed in that. Exactly. Right. <laughs> because so much of being a pastor is planting seeds and kind of playing the long game. Yeah. Um, and so for me, a lot of being a healthy pastor has been understanding that I have to be a healthy person in order to be a healthy pastor and to yes. um, sustain 
that long game of ministry. So um, every one of those parallels or stories that I tell or, or lessons I teach, whether it's in confirmation or, or sermons or um, everything feeds into that long game, ideally. Right. Everything feeds into that long game. Um, I, and that, that took me a while to, to learn. And it's, it's still something that I'm learning and remembering. I think it takes a long time because I don't think people realize the amount also of demands that pastors get from their communities, mm -hmm. right? Of being mm -hmm. able to be present and show up and being a person for whenever a person needs you, right? In your mm -hmm. congregation. And I have to say, one of the things I totally appreciated from you where I just was applauding <laughs> was I think it was on Twitter maybe you posted it or um, it had to be Twitter where you during this time of quarantine uh, and everything going online where you s said something like worship will be delayed <laughs> for 30 minutes due to children <laughs> not going to bed and I was like applaud yeah. applaud <laughs> like, yep. real life yeah, real life had yes <laughs> one of the things we added in was like a facebook live evening prayer or night prayer mm -hmm. um like on wednesday nights at nine o'clock we just added that in as a time to kind of touch base and i mean my kids are horrible sleepers um they're, they're starting to come around but notoriously bad and and this that was a particularly rough night and so we said you know what this is this is the reality. It's, yeah. it's nine o'clock and neither kid is asleep right now. So that means we're just going to uh, pray together over Facebook either later tonight or tomorrow. And it actually wound up having to be bumped to the next night um, because they just would not, yeah. would not go to sleep. So it's all part of it. Yeah, it does. Shoot. It's all part of it. Yeah. So I think that's great about the story you know, of being able to make these connections to stories. And I feel like with scripture, there's this continuous thing unfolding with mm -hmm. scripture where you continually find new connections and stuff. So I think that mm -hmm. in your telling of why you became a pastor makes a whole lot of sense Yeah, as someone who's curious and that's cool. Mm -hmm. And the stories, the stories change and the connections change because we change. Right. And so, you know, it's that phenomenon where you can read a story and see one thing in it or focus on one thing, take one thing from it. And then you come back six months later and you read it and it's something else catches you or you read it in a totally different way because you're a different person mm. now than you were six months ago. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's just been a fun thing to see continuing to unfold and continuing to kind of renew itself. Yeah. When we go back to that. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So how has your idea of God and faith changed from first attending seminary? Yeah. <laughs> right. You're like, so yeah. how much time do we have? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, so I, I went, I went straight from college to seminary. Um, and so I just had my summer vacation. I, I worked at camp that summer, actually the summer prior to seminary and came out to Berkeley. I think I had a very 
individual sense of faith coming to seminary that mm -hmm. that seminary or that yeah. faith rather was something personal and um it didn't have a lot of ramifications necessarily outside of ourselves or if it did they they weren't the focus mm -hmm. um, and i think for i mean for anyone who grew up and kind of came of age in the late 90s and early 2000s so much of faith in the culture was steeped in the evangelical culture um, yeah. whether or not you went to an evangelical church or not um, i didn't I, I went to an elca church um, but there was still so much of the youth group culture and that that was so steeped in the personal faith and personal savior and mm -hmm. that kind of language and that sort of um, philosophy or that way of thinking mm -hmm. and so I really th I thought a lot about or my conception of faith was really that kind of personal faith personal journey um, and then throughout seminary I, I really saw the kind of collective and communal aspect of faith flourish in a lot of new ways um, and so my idea of God then was one who kind of called people together, who gathered mm. people, who, who knit people together in community mm. um, as the body of Christ, right? It was that kind of imagery and that kind of, the idea of community really started to, um, to take root in my faith. And then, I mean, I think about four months into my time, in seminary uh, in the Bay Area in Berkeley it was when Oscar Grant was killed mm. in Oakland there. I mean, just a few yeah. BART stops south of right where we, where, were. where we were. And so it started, th that really drove this, how does faith, how does this personal faith engage publicly mm -hmm. um, and bear witness publicly? And then as I'm wrestling with this, you know, three months before my graduation from seminary in 2012, Trayvon Martin's killed. Oh yeah. And so then, and, and then of course, since then it's been, it seems like the list of black lives taken by the state grows every day. Right. And so throughout seminary and, and even to now, it really, my faith or my ideas of God really went from this individual faith to more of a communal faith. And then since then, it's been really communal for what purpose? Yeah. You know, we're, we're mm -hmm. gathered into a communal faith for what? Mm -hmm. um, and really, I, I think it's become, for me, it's we're gathered into a communal faith to partner with God in liberation and justice. Mm -hmm. um, and not just racially, but in, in, in every conceivable way to partner with God for racial justice, for reproductive justice, for disability justice, for yes. uh, justice and liberation for people of all sexual orientations and gender identities or socioeconomic levels or, or any kind of intersection of identity. There are people who are, who are striving for liberation and justice. And because um, that's living into, like you said, the body. It's living into the body, exactly. <laughs> exactly, and it's it's 
I think God desires liberation and justice for everyone everywhere. Yeah. And so what does it look like as the body of Christ to embody that Mm -hmm. desire Mm -hmm. in the world? Because empires don't grant justice willingly. (laughs) They just don't. Mm -hmm. And so faith has become something now, you know, looking from seminary until now, it's become something that ignites inside of me a desire to partner with God Mm -hmm. in that that work. It seems like uh, I can relate to you in terms of how you talked about faith in the beginning, right? So it Mm -hmm. feels like when we're younger, faith was more reflective, Mm -hmm. you know, where it's like, okay, how do I feel about this? And what are you thinking, God? And you know, that whole, you are my relationship and we are in this together Mm -hmm. to then faith becoming, when you said ignite, active, right? Yeah. How do we make that active? How do we uh, show up and Mm -hmm. bring that personal relationship into the world? Like, oh, Mm -hmm. this is what I've learned. Let's do this together. What have you learned? Right. Yeah. And it's, I think there's still, there's a, a, both end to it where right. showing up in the world while still doing the internal work of partnering with God, right. To, mm-hmm. to, because there's, there are still things that I need to be set free from, yeah. um, from the, the learned and ingrained prejudices and patriarchy yeah. and white supremacy and all of these things that, <laughs> that I need to be set free from. Mm-hmm. 100%. Right. Yeah. And also so does everyone else. And right. So, right. I was like, it's let that, me give you my list. Right. Yeah, exactly, right? Like, yeah. yeah. These are all things just because of these are, this is the water we swim in mm-hmm. um, as people who grew up in a 21st century empire. And so these are the things that we have to undo and partner with God to undo in ourselves and then undo in our society. Um, and so, yeah, you look back at, I, or I look back at starting seminary and it was, yeah, it was very much of this, this very personal relationship and, and personal faith. And what do I need to do to grow in faith in myself? However, I defined it at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's, yeah, it's showing up in a much more concrete and active way. I think that's what I, what I love. I'm sorry. Yeah. I think that's what I loved about going to school PLTS uh, when it was up Mm -hmm. on the hill, because it did give that notion of um, reflection because it was up on this hilltop and it was very Mm -hmm. retreat like, but it was in Berkeley. Um, Mm -hmm. And when you're down in Berkeley, I remember coming there from, I took some time off, but I think I've very much lived in a bubble for a long time, <laughs> a very long time. Mm-hmm. And I remember going there and sitting in class and then walking uh, downtown Berkeley, walking in parks and just saying, so this is what you mean. Yeah. So this is where we are <laughs> like yeah. as humanity. So this is how we're broken. So this is the work we need to do oh, and these are the things I need to do, right? Because I, I very much recognize my prejudices 
firsthand in Berkeley. It was a very much, it was like, I felt like God came down as like, here's the silver platter of all the things you need to work on. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, oh, okay, what, where do I start first, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. But that was what I think was great about that experience for sure. Yeah. And even, you know, I think it was particularly powerful. I remember reflecting about, you know, how the student housing, the apartments were, were down in Berkeley mm -hmm. and the campus where we took classes was up the hill. And so every day you're going up and coming down, you're going away for reflection and then you're coming down for action and mm -hmm. you're going away for reflection and then you're coming down for action. And that was, uh, I remember reflecting that as I was riding down the hill one day, um, mm. that this is, this is the, the rhythm of, and it doesn't mean that reflection stops when you go down and it doesn't mean that action stops when you go up. Right. Um, but that that's, that was the rhythm of things. Mm -hmm. uh, and in some ways it's still the rhythm of things, even if we don't, physically move up and down. I'm, I'm in Northern Minnesota right now and not a whole lot of hills to move up and down. Um, but still that, that movement from reflection to action and, and how it can be physical, how, it, how the physical markers of that can still be really powerful. Yeah. So a lot of what you talked about too, in terms of patriarchy and white supremacy and different things like that, yeah. Um, and the way we feel or the way it, the world responds with reproductive justice and different things like this, mm -hmm. a lot of those things we actually learned from the church. Yeah. So yeah. as a pastor, then where are you seeing the need for a church to change? Hmm. And how do you believe that will happen? <laughs> It's always a dangerous question to ask a right. pastor, right? right? Like, but it's also, it's dangerous because it's, it's kind of fun. It's fun <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, I think, I think really we need to reclaim our scriptural, our scriptural roots um, as communities of faith against empire. Yeah. And I think throughout scripture, almost always you see God's people subjugated and under the foot of empire in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. It was Assyria and it was, well, it was Egypt and then it was Assyria and Babylon and Persia and then Rome. And it's this countless list of empires and God's people existing and worshiping and living and flourishing in the midst of empire. Um, and I think we've lost some of that urgency because we're, we're citizens of an empire. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't think we, we really understand that necessarily or claim, um, claim those roots as strongly as we could. Mm. And that's scary. And that carries with it consequences. Mm -hmm. And uh, just like it did for God's people in scripture. So then how will that happen? That's fun. <laughs> that, right. 
right? <laughs> enjoy. Um, enjoy answering. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How will that happen? You know, I think it's, it starts for me, at least, I mean, I'm coming from the perspective of someone who's kind of inside the system. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm ordained. Uh, I've, you know, I'm a pastor within the, the system of the church, within the ELCA. And so I think those of us who are in the system need to steward our privilege in a way that passes the microphone to others. Mm. Um, and often it gets worded like being a voice for the voiceless. Yeah. Um, but people on the margins have voices. They just don't have equal access to the microphone. Exactly. Right. And so... I don't know the way necessarily to becoming like a capital C church against empire. Um, but I also know that that answer won't come from me because I'm mm. a white dude. Right. Um, and I, in a lot of ways, I embody the empire in my perspective. And then all of those ways that we were talking about I need, the things inside I need to unlearn. Right. At almost every intersection of my identity, I gain privilege. And so mm. Like, I think for me, as I reflect on it, my marching orders in this struggle for a better and more just church are to listen. I was just going to say, it's a whole lot of listening. It's a whole lot of listening. It's mm-hmm. listening to, to women, particularly Black women, listening to my LGBTQ plus siblings, listening to people with disabilities, listening to people who, who are on the margins of society because that's where society has told them they can be. Mm-hmm. I need to listen to them and I need to pass the mic to them when I can right. and speak up for the vulnerable and speak up for those on the margins when I can't pass the mic and be, you know, be a better ancestor. Leila Saad in, in her Me and White Supremacy book talks about being a better ancestor. And so thinking about it through the lens of how can I be a better ancestor for the next generation of the church? How can I be a better ancestor? How can I help the church grow in ways where, where our kids can flourish there Mm -hmm. Um, and where our kids can do this same kind of work and our grandkids, if we're fortunate enough to, to have grandkids, whatever that looks like ahead in the next generations how can we be better ancestors? And I and think it's a lot of, sorry, to um, no, go ahead. convince or encourage, I don't know if it's convince, uh, but also encourage and ha- allow for the congregation to listen or to see the value, right? The, mm-hmm. Then the church community to listen. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the challenge is with all this is, because we're living in a space now inundated with written word mm-hmm. and not as much oral word <laughs> mm-hmm. that we aren't listening. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like trying to find that place where we can create an atmosphere for people to listen. Mm-hmm. There is, there's so much, so much of the idea that that right now we're just we're listening so that we can respond right right mm-hmm. and it's, mm-hmm. it's that same it's that trap that we fall into where we're not genuinely listening 
to what people are saying and we're not taking it in and letting it impact us or letting it shift the way that we think about whatever it is we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, but we let people, we let, right? We're still maintaining power in this. We let people continue to talk so that we can then yeah, try to convince them, try to, I don't know what it is we think we're, we're doing or how effective we think we're going to be when we get in those head spaces. Um, but I wish like we could just enter into spaces and be like, so um, we're all right and we're all wrong. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. <laughs> so let's just know yeah. that and let's not try to convince where we're right and wrong, but let's just hear each other. Yeah. We're all products of the environment that that we have grown up in and that we continue to exist in and mm -hmm. and that that benefits us and it doesn't mm -hmm. and so yeah coming to conversations with the the humility that we don't <laughs> we don't know everything and the things <laughs> the realities that we've experienced are not the realities that everyone else has experienced yeah um and i think that's particularly a lesson that us white men need to really inhabit and embody mm -hmm. um, because we are historically and notoriously terrible at doing that. And it's something that continues to persist. It, does, it takes five seconds of scrolling through Twitter before you have another white man with an opinion. And it's, it doesn't help. Yeah. It, it's not productive. And I say that also as someone who is on Twitter and as a white man with opinions from time to time. <laughs> um, so, right, like I'm also, it's, it's still something that I'm continually trying to remind myself and undo within myself. Mm -hmm. um, to it's listen. hard. Yeah. It's hard, sure. It's very hard. Yeah. So as someone who does read and who is a... Uh, you know, scrolling, but also reading books, you know, yeah. the written word, as I had said before. Yeah. Um, I know you've, you read multiple different books by multiple different authors of diversity um, who have different lenses of seeing things. So what have you gleaned about the human story from the stories that you have read? I think the one thing that sticks out in all of the, in the stories that stick with me, the stories that I remember that, that first come to my mind when I think about you know, a question like this is that the human story is one of resilience, mm. that we're resilient beyond our wildest imagination. Mm. Um, I, you know, I think of you know, the books that come to mind when you ask a, a question like this, I mean, many of them are by black writers and indigenous writers and writers of color. And they're kind of having a renaissance now with the, um, a lot of the protests and those kinds of things. You look at the New York Times bestseller list and mm -hmm. it's fantastic to yeah. see all of these books um, being bought and being read hopefully after they're bought and then um, you know, hopefully taken in and enacted. Um, but I even, I think of some of the books that were foundational for me, um, 
I think of like Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God and the, the character of Janie in that is so resilient or um, the cast of characters in Yajayasi's book Homegoing. Did you ever read that one? That one no. it came out maybe three or four years ago. Um, an incredible novel. Um, or the stories told by uh, Isabel Wilkerson in The Warmth of Other Suns about people uh, in the Great Migration mm. in the early 1900s. Like you read these stories and people are incredibly resilient. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you, you even take that back to the stories then in scripture. Mm-hmm. Stories of people who were forced into exile, stories who were, of people who were, you know, kicked out of their hometowns, kicked out of the places where they've lived their entire life, where their family had lived for generations, their places of worship burned down, their, you know, all these, these things in their life destroyed and the resilience to come through it, to to still tell this story without covering up the hard spots and without covering up the blemishes and the times we've fallen short, but but to to live, to live through them and to continue on is incredible. And and those are the stories that really stick with us, I think. So where do you um, think resiliency comes from? The, the ability to have that. I think it comes through having experienced hardship, having struggled, having, um, having gone through the fire of sorts and surviving yeah. and coming through that. And, you know, I think that's why, you know, I, in college, I, I was an English major, so I read a lot of dead white men. And then I went to a Lutheran seminary and continued to read <laughs> continued a lot the of process, white men. right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and there's something, you know, a- after leaving school and, and, or graduating and, um, being out, you know, you read, I wanted to read uh, the writing of not dead white men mm-hmm. to see, uh, mm-hmm. what their stories were and what they had to say. And, and once you, once you do, you see these stories or you read these stories of, of generational struggle, of injustices that have been perpetuated and have continued to do incredible harm. And you read about the things that flourish in spite of that Mm. struggle, or maybe even because of that struggle. It's not my story, so I can't claim any way of really describing what that's like, but only what I what I read of their testimonies from that, coming out of that, and the joy that's found in the midst of that, or the laughter that happens 
in the midst of that, right? The, the, res the resistance mm -hmm. where, where joy and laughter are actually acts of resistance in the midst of the struggle. It's like the image that comes to mind always is, um, you know, when life is blooming out of concrete. Yeah. You know? Yep. People, you yep. Know, when things are mauled over and stuff, but we continue to to rise and bloom and yeah yeah and again you know that's that's scripture you think all the way back to like the book of genesis with abraham and sarah mm -hmm. and god's you know god comes to them and says you know look at the stars so numerous shall your descendants be and sarah laughs and that's a laugh that's not trivial and it's not it's a laugh that contains a lot of sorrow and a lot of hardship and a lot of of unfulfilled dreams. Yeah, I'm I'm mm. taking some liberties maybe with with her emotion or her state. I, I am maybe doing a little bit of the the midrash and interpreting that. Um, but you think about being 99 years old do you think about you know how how old they were and the promises that came to them in that age and sarah's response is to laugh yeah so i mean this is a tale as old as time i guess that that in struggle um that there is still that there still can be joy and goodness and mm -hmm. laughter um and that that's resilience mm-hmm that maintaining that ability in whatever way we can in however we can hold on to something like that, however we can hold on to that part of our humanity in the midst of the struggle is resilience. Thinking about, I don't know, just images and I kept thinking of all these different things as you were talking and things coming up, coming up in my brain and also the way that we change the way we look at God throughout these times. So if you had to describe for us your image of God, you know, oftentimes, I know for me, God was introduced as this old white man. <laughs> right? Like King, King Triton from The Little Mermaid. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> maybe uh, without the mermaid tail, which would I mean, have been maybe, even more fun. Like, but yeah, right? why not? <laughs> Exactly. That would have been more fun. He's but... swimming in the cloud anyway. So like, <laughs> might as well have a mermaid tail. So what, what is your image of God at this moment? Because I know for me, my images change. Mm -hmm. I don't know if yours change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Right now, I think God, or my image of God is... God is the name that we give mm -hmm. to the force that animates everything good and just and merciful and life-giving in our world. I love that word animate, by the way. I, it's been... <laughs> I, it, I really I, like that. <laughs> yeah. I, used, I, I actually, I used it in a Pentecost sermon that I, I gave just, a, whatever it was, five, six weeks ago on Pentecost about the Holy Spirit animating something in the early church and how it, and that just it did it, it 
it seems to be this word that sticks with me, especially when I think about, yeah, God as, as this force that does, that animates, that brings life to us um, for the sake of others, and that, that animates the good and the just and the merciful and the life-giving mm-hmm. thing in our world. And so anything that's unjust or unmerciful or not good or not life-giving is not God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's not, that, that is not what God desires. That's not what God wills for our world. That, and that's, so then that's not what God animates in our world. Hmm. that's not how God is made known in our world. I appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No problem. Different than King Triton, right? Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, really the little mermaid. I'm going to do just an entire podcast on the little mermaid and how much that story shaped my life. It was Um, the first movie I ever saw in theaters. Really? And I actually, I fell asleep like an hour into it. Oh, no, that's I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember exactly how I, but I was, I, I was a kid. I was, you know, I was young. First movie I ever went to. And uh, I don't, yeah, I don't actually remember where yeah. I fell asleep uh, in the movie, but I just remember my mom waking me up. Man, I wish uh, I, I don't even remember the first movie I saw in the theater. It's, it was that's only memorable sad. to me because I fell asleep. <laughs> That that was that was then the story of <laughs> Eric's first movie. He fell, fell asleep. <laughs> yeah. At least it wasn't as expensive as it is today. It's true. Yeah, <laughs> and it may have even been you know back then uh, our town had a like a dollar theater, so it may have even been at like the dollar theater for movies after they'd been out for a little while. They would head over there. So I don't actually know which which theater it was. Then what would you say, as our last question for, for today, yeah. what has been the biggest reframing for you in your life? And that, and how, what would you, how would you teach your children about that? Yeah. So I think this, this is actually, in thinking about this, this is very much like an, an active thing right now. This, this mm-hmm. example I'll give is very, very active, something we're actively pursuing um, and it's around bodies mm. and, and food and how we talk to ourselves about the oh food. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And what that means <laughs> or doesn't mean for our bodies. Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess that my, I have a daughter who's almost six and a son who's almost two. Um, and so we are, are trying so hard to reframe the story, I mean, even me, I'm, I'm in my mid thirties, but spouse is in, in her mid thirties. And so we're still trying to reframe these stories for ourselves as well. Um, you know, trying to reframe labels around food, like whether food is good or bad for you or healthy or unhealthy for you. Oh my God. Um, trying to undo, <laughs> right? This is it's where so- I think as a parent, yeah. I have the most shame. Yeah. Yep. I really do because I have struggled with food mm-hmm. where it is my emotional outlet for sure. Same. Emotional eater for Same. sure. And I know that I am in a battle with it and mm-hmm. I have totally projected that out 
onto my kids. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, ah, and it's like, I hear the words coming out of my mouth. And it's like, I feel like my hands are reaching out to grab those words, be like, no, (laughs) bring those back. And And it's, it's it's hard. Oh God. It's everywhere. Mm. Like even, even, so we, I mean, we try to be, you know, really intentional about what, what Lily, our our almost six-year-old, what she like watches on TV and sees, but even like on the PBS app, they have this Professor Fizzy Mm-hmm. show and it's it's about food and it's all this kind of stuff and it's made her um look at the nutrition labels and it's taught her how to look at those and so you know we'll be having a snack and she'll look at the nutrition label and say this has 70 calories is that a lot or not a lot and we're like <laughs> and you do it is it's that impulse to like no yeah. um but so then reframing that well 70 calories means you will have energy and yeah. means it will give you energy to run and jump and skip and play. Mm-hmm. Um, and all food gives us energy in, in ways. And so wh- one of the ways we've tried to reframe it is we've tried to talk about hunger and teach them to. Yeah. Listen to what, your body. For, listen to your body. What yeah. are you hungry for? It's wise actually. <laughs> Yeah, it's totally. Your body <laughs> knows, right? Your body yeah. knows what it's craving, knows what it's hungry for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's what we try to, what we're trying to teach them is to listen to that and trust that and pay attention to that. And like this week has been kind of a wild week. Um, we were out, out at the, out at my parents' lake place this last week uh, for a little vacation, a little getaway. Um and so our bodies were craving chips and salsa and guacamole. Our bodies were craving, you know, all mm-hmm. kinds of things. Um, and then we came home and we were like, oh, our bodies, our bodies are craving something different. Our bodies yeah. need water. Our bodies need fruit. And so like this week, we've just eaten a ton of fruit and mm. like gone through watermelons like it's our job, mm-hmm. um, you know, and because that's, that's what our body was craving. And Sometimes, I mean, a lot of times the answer to that question around our house is our bodies are craving ice cream. <laughs> and there's a new, there's a new Ben and Jerry's flavor called Chip Happens. What? Have you heard of this? No. It's chocolate ice cream with fudge chips and potato chip swirls. Stop it right now. Right? <laughs> so a lot of times, my body craves potato chip swirls. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's what quarantine needs. It's right? like, a potato chip that's, swirls. Mm-hmm. That's what quarantine necessitates is yeah. mm. potato chip swirls. That was and a good idea, whoever came was, up with that. <laughs> it's fantastic. Oh my gosh. Oh, it's so good. And so the and I mean part of it is right, it's understanding that this is like a uniquely <laughs> hard time. Sure. To start teaching about about hunger and things like that because we're stressed oh, and it's mm-hmm. a you know it's a stressful time but but I suppose in some ways then that might make this a really great time mm-hmm. um, to start doing that because then hopefully there are less stressful days ahead in our lives where we'll have you know we'll have uh, strengthened the muscle in us that that asks our body 
what we're hungry for. Mm. And that has done some of that work and laid that groundwork so that then that's, that's what we go to. Yeah. Um, that's the question we ask first rather than what would be a good snack or a bad snack or what would be a guilty pleasure this mm -hmm. afternoon or whatever, whatever other ways we have to, to think about that. And those, those things are, they're so insidious yeah. in, in our culture and our world and our minds. And so trying to undo that the best we can. Um, it's hard. Like <laughs> I do. It's hard. Yeah. Have you, speaking of books then, have you yeah. read Janine Roth? No. Oh, my friend. Janine Roth. I hope I'm saying her name correctly. I always say names wrong. Sure. Um, but she writes phenomenal books on food. And I, as a person who struggle with food, but also as a sex educator, I see um, mm -hmm. the, the way they intersect very nicely. But uh, she has many, many books um, related to food and like uh, when food becomes, or when intimacy becomes food or something like this or love. And okay, I will have to um, share that with you, but did look she, her up. Her so did she write, um, so like women, food and God? Yes, she did. Is and that, did I, she that I'm going to tell you that her books really, I underline probably everything. Right? Uh, this is probably too much for everyone to know. And then I, um, uh, dovetail all the I'm just like constantly and then this last book I was like did she literally write this for me <laughs> because yeah. this, is, this is a lot but it's very yeah. I mean she just touches to the emotional component so deeply yeah. and so well and um, her books are have all have always been the place I go to and they're great to just read in little bits and pieces and then to journal mm -hmm. from it's just okay. very everyone out there where food is just yeah. your coping mechanism. Go get that. Yep. Go get her books. They're so good. So good. I think we, I think we have women food and God around here. Yeah. I mean, and you don't need to be a woman to read this book. Like I just no. feel like 100%. No. It just, she, she writes in a way that it, it can apply to anything and it can apply, I think really to any sort of an addiction. Yeah. Right. Yep. Because it, all of our addictions come from a place of wanting, mm -hmm. you know, of, of yeah. wanting something that we weren't given. Yeah. And so it comes from those places and it, well, and so, many people so can much relate. Of that, so much of that wisdom is kind of pigeonholed in the publishing industry toward women. Mm. Right. Like, I don't, I don't know of anyone who's written a book. There may be a book out there called men, food and God, or, <laughs> something like that right but like but the ways that men are taught about hunger are just so different than the ways that women are taught or about bodies or about yeah. oh my the gosh. space right the we space should do like a part two yeah. <laughs> yeah well that was i just saw i was reading an article the other day and i forget exactly where it was but yeah about how you know all of the advertising toward men around bodies is is ways to bulk up and to take up more space yeah and we have Where, to take less space mm -hmm. 100%. yeah mm -hmm. yeah and so it's i i don't know if there are many 
yeah, I don't know if there are many books geared toward men that are like, I like that talking about craving or talking about, well, certainly there are many books geared toward men about how to take up more space in the world. That's (laughs) not a hard thing to find. (laughs) Not a a problem, right? (laughs) No. Um, But a lot of that, you know, the wisdom of, uh, yeah, of Janine Roth, I'm going to check out more of, of hers or even like, I read um, Jen Hatmaker has a new book out called Fierce, Free, and Full of Fire. I know. I got to read that. My friend actually just gave me that book. Is it? So good. Can I just, I mean, I just want to know, on average, how long does it take you to read a book? Start to finish. Um, It depends. Uh, It depends on the book, but it probably, uh, three days. Oh, geez. (laughs) And I have like, I'll usually have a, f- a few books going at the same time. Like, yeah, that's how I am too. Yeah. So I'll have like a, a God book and a novel like or fiction or something like that. And then I'll have um, like an audio book yeah. or something like that checked out from the library um, that I'll listen to. I, I used to listen to on my commutes when I would drive places, but now I really don't drive places all that much. So that's taken a bit of a dive, but, but yeah, I would say, yeah, every couple of days, two, three days. I think it's funny how like, well, maybe not funny, but uh, when all this stuff with coronavirus started, like my attention span, just like, plummeted mm-hmm. and and I could tell because I I just could not read like oh, yeah. I would read two pages and then I'd check my phone for updates or I'd go to the kitchen and make some toast or I you know just <laughs> I would something different um but I just had no my attention span for reading was just shot yeah it's um, been hard it has been it's really been it hard. has been yeah and it's come back a little bit now i get my body has sort of settled into like okay this is a this is a long haul thing and mm-hmm. is a way that you wind down and you need to wind down <laughs> um, i recently have been seeing a lot of praying mantises which is normally never happens yeah. to me yeah and so i was like I'm all someone who looks for meaning all the time, sure, which is absolutely. sometimes the problem. But You're an Enneagram 4, of course you are, I, right? This is what we do. So I looked up, what does praying mantis mean? Yeah. And it's I on the web, it said something, an appearance from the mantis is a message to be still, go within, meditate, and quiet, and reach a place of calm. And I was like, well, of course. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Thanks. This is going to be praying long. <laughs> Yeah, right. I got you. I better send like three dozen <laughs> of these her way to like. She needs another sure reminder. <laughs> to be still. Right. Right. Well, Eric, I enjoy you so much and I appreciate you talking with me today. And I appreciate um, your words and that, again, that you're doing the work and that you're, yeah. you're activating your faith. So thank you. Thank you. This has been, this has been a lot of fun. Okay. And then um, if people want to reach out to you or just ask you questions or anything, how could they yeah. do that? Um, I'm on the socials, Facebook, 
uh, Eric Clapp, Eric underscore Clapp on Twitter. Um, Twitter is where I usually talk more about this kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. Facebook is generally more like, here are my kids doing crazy things. Um, but yeah. certainly you can reach out on, on either. Um, and Instagram is mostly pictures of food I make or coffee that I make. Um, <laughs> they are, are all rather specific. Yeah, um, they are. That's actually, I think, quite brilliant in a way. Yeah, it's, it's, it was unintentional, but uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll go with it, I guess. So, uh, yeah, but Eric Clapp, Eric underscore Clapp uh, on Twitter and Instagram Very as well. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.